Need a little good news? It's Matt's birthday today. Good job, Matt. Way to get born all those years ago. You did great. Good job. And there's more good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ is still good. And he is powerful. And we're going to praise him. And we're going to give him all the glory for all that he's accomplished. And we're going to thank him for the ministry he's going to do in our hearts, even through our toughest of times. And we're not going to cease to give him all the credit that he deserves. And so if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open up with us to Luke chapter 22, which is where we're going to be studying together today as a church body. If you need a Bible, make sure you raise your hand and our guys will bring one to you. This is the Word of God spoken through His servants. Uh, these are not the opinions of men or the ideas of prophets and, and kings or preachers. These are the words of God given to us through those whom He has specially ordained to record them. And we will continue to look after these words and preach them and hide them in our hearts so that we will not sin against our God. We will continue to cherish them and give them the rightful place uh, that they deserve in our, in our lives so that we may glorify God and, and worship Him the way that He has desired to be worshipped. <clears throat> Hope everybody's got what they need as we begin here this morning. On May 9th of 1864, the United States was embroiled in civil war. The Battle of the Wilderness was a particular war that was being fought in Virginia between the Union, uh, Union Army led by Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant and Confederate forces under General Robert E. Lee. Union General John Sedgwick was inspecting his troops on the front lines. He made his way uh, to a parapet near the front of the front lines and he gazed out in the direction of his enemy. Some of the petty officers nearby warned him that he should be below the parapet, that he should be careful with where he stepped. The general confidently replied, nonsense. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. No sooner had the words left his mouth that he fell to the ground, fatally wounded by a Confederate sniper. He was the highest ranking officer to lose his life in the Civil War. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're engaged in a different kind of war, a war with grave spiritual consequences. And while it is not fought with the weapons of this world, it is, however, a serious battle, a battle that has its own risks and dangers. Jesus has been revealing many of those dangers to his disciples as they approach the final days of his earthly ministry. Now remember just a few verses ago that Jesus warned his disciples of how Satan desired to sift them, meaning separate them out from what was righteous and good. He wanted to use Jesus' own disciples for his evil bidding. And after he gave them this warning, Peter, one of the twelve, responded boldly, saying in chapter 22, verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter was declaring that no matter what happened, he would not deny Jesus Christ. According to Peter, he'd rather go to jail or even to the grave rather than abandon his master. These are the words of a man who believes in his strength. These are the words of a man with conviction. These are the words of a dedicated friend, a devoted follower, and a delusional disciple. Peter had not yet been exposed to the words that the Apostle Paul would later write and share in a message to the church at Corinth when he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. 
Oh, the weakness that creeps into our hearts and minds when we buy into the notion that we are more mighty than we really are. Man is at his most vulnerable when he begins to believe the lie that he is invincible. General John Sedgwick found that out the hard way when he took a slug from a Confederate musket. Overconfidence is a deadly luxury that we cannot afford. Peter is an example of this. And many times, so are we. The story of Peter's denial is a warning against spiritual self-confidence. It is Christ letting us know that our trust and our hope must always be in His strength and not our own. We must always have a realistic view of what we are capable of. And we must realize that we are capable of far, far more evil things than we believe that we are. This morning, we're going to examine how Peter's delusional mindset um, that his faith could not be shaken, would not be broken, will lead to the very denial that he commits in the verses we're going to be studying today. Before we begin, understand that the account that we're going to be reading today is not happening in a vacuum. Though the focus of the storyline in the next several verses is going to be on Peter and what happens to him in the hours immediately following the arrest of Jesus, at the very same time, Jesus is enduring some shameful treatment at the hand of the chief priests. And, in so many, and, and so in many, many ways, as Jesus triumphs, as Jesus stands before his accusers, as he holds himself with dignity and does not back down from the calling to which he has been called, at the very same time that he triumphs, Paul, Peter is in the courtyard just yards away, failing, losing track of what is right, refusing to stand in the truth. And so in Luke chapter 22... We're going to begin by reading verses 54 through 57. We're going to read several verses today, but we're going to take them a chunk at a time. Then they seized him, meaning Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Jesus is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. The Apostle John's Gospel account tells us that his hands were bound as he was marched a short distance back into Jerusalem, into the city proper, from the Mount of Olivet, to a large home, a home that housed the high priests. It was sort of a small palace, really. At the time this happens, the Jews had essentially two high priests at the same time. This was not their common practice, but a man named Annas had formerly been the high priest, and he was very influential amongst the Jews. He was getting uh, quite advanced in years. He had stepped aside from his high priestly role and given that to his son-in-law, a man named Caiaphas. But Annas still had what was likely the most influential voice in Judea at the time. And so while Caiaphas was officially the high priest, Annas served as, as almost a second high priest, a high priest emeritus, uh, uh, if you will. Both of them lived in this palace together, which was arranged in such a way, almost in a horseshoe or, or a, a square shape, that in the center of the building structure, there was a big courtyard where people could gather together. Jesus will be brought before Annas first where the chief priests will throw false accusation after false accusation at Jesus just to see if anything will stick. 
Remember, Jesus is completely without sin. Unlike every one of us, he has never offended the Father God. He has walked in purity, in holiness, and in grace. So there really is nothing that they can rightfully accuse Jesus of, but that doesn't mean they're going to make every effort to try to paint him in a difficult and ugly light. The trial after Annas will then move across the courtyard to the other side of the palace where Caiaphas will then attempt to formulate a more serious and formal charge against Jesus. They needed to make up a crime that would be serious enough to warrant the execution of this man they considered their opponent. Since the Jewish law declared that no legal trial could be held under the, the, the cloak of darkness of night, Jesus would have to face yet a third Jewish council once the sun had come up so that the chief priests could put on airs and, and pretend as though they were following protocol. The real trial where they condemned him as a sinner happened in the veil of darkness against the law. And so they had a third trial just to try to follow the rules and make people believe they were doing this the right way. These first two preliminary hearings, however, occurred between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m., roughly, on the morning of Good Friday. After Jesus was arrested, Peter had begun to follow him at a distance. The scripture doesn't tell us a lot about what happened to the other nine disciples, but we do know that they fled. Peter and John, so far as scripture tells us, are the only two that followed along after Jesus as he was taken away in custody by the, the chief priests and their entourage. Now it appears from Luke's perception that Peter and John followed after Jesus and his captors separately, but that's not the entire story. As we look at the other gospel accounts and compare the notes of Matthew and Mark and John, we see that the disciple John actually knew one of the chief priests. And so John was able to get into the palace to hear the trial. John, after having get, gotten into the palace, then went back to the door and spoke to the person who was working the door. We call that a porter, someone who allows people to come in or out and regulates the flow of traffic. And he talked to the porter and was able to convince the porter to allow Peter to come into the courtyard. Now, Peter was not known by this chief priest, so he had to come in secretly under the, under the cloak of, of, of anonymity, whereas John was able to go forward and stand in the crowds as the trials were happening. Peter had to blend in and act like he was just one of the servants in the palace. And so as these palace servants gathered around a fire there late at night to warm themselves, waiting to see what was going to happen with this commotion that started late at night, Peter joined them and tried to blend in. Likely, Peter doesn't have much of a plan at this point. He doesn't really know what he's going to do, but he loves his Savior, he loves Jesus, and he, he can't bear to not know what is happening to this man who is so important to him. And so he is there waiting to see if there's anything to be done, waiting to see if perhaps there is a part of the plan that Jesus had not revealed to them yet, how they might be surprised at a victory, or perhaps that he would show them some sort of powerful triumph over these, these wicked chief priests. But he really doesn't know what's going to happen. He's simply waiting. Now the first accusation that's levied against Peter as he sits there and tries to blend in comes from a servant girl who in verse 56 suggests that Peter was with Jesus. Now this is an example of guilt by association. The girl does not go so far as to make a claim that Peter is a disciple of Christ She's only declared that she has noticed him amongst those who followed after him. 
Even though this is not a condemning claim necessarily, Peter feels compelled to deny it. Now there is an incredible irony on display in these verses. The accusation against Peter is brought by a no-named servant girl. While Jesus is in the very process of being brought before the high priest, before the most powerful men in Jerusalem, Peter's under the trial of a comparatively minor kind. This young lady's opinion of him is what he needs to be worried about. What can this girl do to him? What real threat does she pose? The fact that he specifically expresses his denial with the, with the phrase, woman, I do not know him, may even be an indicator that he recognizes a woman in this culture could not even bear testimony in the court of law. So she didn't even have a real legal say against him if he were one of the disciples of Jesus. His accuser can do nothing to him but point a finger and raise some eyebrows. Yet Peter is quick to lie, denying that he is even familiar with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. This is the Apostle Paul who could speak with authority on that because Paul had been dragged before human courts. Paul had been indicted for preaching the gospel. He had been indicted as a rebel rouser and as a threat to the Caesar. And so he had faced jail time. He had been in prison for long stretches of time. And yet what Paul is communicating to the church in Corinth, listen, I know that some of you in Corinth question my authority and don't want to follow after me. Some of you even say that I'm not a real apostle. I'm not concerned with what people have to say is what Paul is saying. He's saying that my true judge is the Lord God and I will answer to Jesus Christ. We should not be overly concerned with the opinions of people in this world. And yet here is Peter and a young woman has pointed at him and said, this one follows after Jesus. And he has denied that this is really even his king. Our true judge is the Son of God, the one who determines our eternity. We live in a world that's flooded with an endless supply of unfounded opinions. And yet how often do we find ourselves cowering at the opinions of wandering men and women when the mighty creator God has given us truth and we should be strong to stand in that truth regardless of what the world thinks about us. Brothers and sisters, the next time you feel an impulse to shrink away from the opinions of men, Remember that your Savior faced a much more intimidating judge on your behalf. And so Jesus faces a high priest and he stands firm. Peter wilts under the gaze of a servant girl. And at this point, perhaps due to the high tension of the situation, Peter is not even consciously aware that he is fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus gave in the upper room just hours before. In the moment, he's simply doing what he thinks he needs to do to maintain this low profile. Luke twenty-two fifty-eight, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. This is the second accusation. He is also one of them. Have you noticed a change here? First, he is recognized as being somebody who is with Jesus. And now they are pointing the finger and saying, no, 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 this is, this is more than that. He is one of them. He is experiencing 
guilt by identification instead of just guilt by association. The second accuser is building on the case against Peter by claiming that he wasn't just with Jesus, he was one of his bona fide disciples. And now Peter's fears are likely coming true as these strangers are beginning to speculate that if Jesus is about to be tried by the chief priests, then perhaps the guards should show an interest in his disciple as well. Of course, Peter is alarmed and he restates his earlier denial. This is likely the point of the night where Jesus, having been presented to Annas and slandered as a blasphemer, is then marched around or across the courtyard over to the residence of Caiaphas. It is here that they will begin to craft a narrative that is more fictional than the first one. A narrative that would prove more troubling to the Roman rulers that would eventually have to be appealed to by these Jewish rulers. You see, in Jerusalem, the culture of Judaism was very strong. And there had been historically great tension between the Jews and the Romans who ruled over their land. In an effort to keep as much peace as possible, the Caesars and the regional rulers had allowed the Jewish people a, a form of self-governance, a type of law that they were allowed to enforce that was coinciding with the law that Moses had given to them so long as they did that as a layer on top of the Roman law which they had to legally obey as well. So there were Roman soldiers in Jerusalem enforcing the Roman law but they allowed the temple soldiers to enforce the law of Moses on top of that. Now this freedom had its limits. They could enforce the religious law so long as it didn't conflict with Roman law but they were not allowed to sentence anyone to death because of their Jewish laws. If someone was going to be executed, that had to go through Caesar and through his laws and policies. Only Roman officials could sign off on an execution. So their claims that Jesus was a blasphemer, somebody who insulted their God, was not enough for a Roman consulate to say, yes, murder him, put him to death. They needed to point that finger and insist that Jesus was more than a blasphemer, more than a breaker of religious rules. They had to convince the Romans that he was a revolutionary as well. The frustrations of the Jewish officials are beginning to manifest themselves in the ways that they're treating Jesus. While Peter's dodging accusations from servants, Jesus is being screamed at. He's being punched in the face by these high priests and their temple guards. He's being spat upon as insult after insult is being hurled upon him and he simply remains silent. Knowing that the accusations are false, but also knowing full well that he would have to die as the bearer of the sins of sinners in order to accomplish their redemption. And so then Luke 22, chapter 22, verses 59 through 62 goes on to say this. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The third accusation. Verse 59. This claim is given with more certainty. And it is presented with evidence. 
The servants around the fire are no longer speculating about who Peter might be there, declaring that Peter is indeed one of the disciples of the very man that is on trial in that hour. Not only are these claims made, but evidence is cited in support. See, no one just, no one's going to react to a hunch. No one's going to respect someone's gut feeling or, or the possibility that this might be a, a criminal. But an accusation with solid reasoning can get some attention. And so this man draws attention to the fact that Peter is a Galilean. His mannerisms, and especially his accent, betrayed the region from which he came. And they knew that Jesus ministered primarily in the region of Galilee for the majority of his ministry. They had plenty of reasons by this time to believe that he was one of the twelve. In any case, what was he doing here at such an odd hour? I mean, this is the middle of the night. If he's not a servant, and the servants don't recognize him, and he's in the courtyard of the temple, then why was he with them? He had no alibi in the face of his accusers. John 18.26 tells us that the man who asked the third time was a relative of the man Malchus. Do you remember him from last week? Malchus was the man whose ear had been cut off by one of Jesus' disciples. We learned last week that disciple was actually Peter. So perhaps this one had paid closer attention to that face that had injured his loved one. Perhaps he was in the party that had come to apprehend Jesus and drag him back into Jerusalem. He had a vested interest in uh, un uncloaking anybody who was involved with Jesus' um, ministry. Jewish re law required the testimony of two to three witnesses to convict someone of a crime. Deuteronomy 19 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So it's not coincidental that all of these things worked out in such a way that three individuals would have accused him of being one of Jesus' accomplices. In this simple opportunity, Peter could have just said, Yes, I follow Jesus and left it at that and let the chips fall where they may. But instead, he adamant, re, adamantly replied, I do not know what you are talking about. Bless you. There is anger in his voice. There is fear in his voice. There is desperation in his voice. And Luke actually doesn't really show that in depth. He tones down this response, perhaps in defense of, of Peter, he tones down the response to a degree that Matthew 26 and Mark 14 don't tone down the, the response. Those accounts tell us that he was cursing in response to these men who were accusing him of being a follower of Jesus and that he literally swore that he was not one of them. In the Jewish culture, that meant that he would make a vow that if, if he was not telling the truth, that the Lord God might do something terrible to him. So you can imagine that as the words came out of his mouth and he heard the sound of that rooster crowing and he remembered in that instant the words of his Savior Jesus Christ and understood that he was living them out in real time how devastatingly crushing that must have been to his soul. Peter's earlier display of confidence is being put to the test and as he stands exposed in the courtyard of the high priest the strength and resolve that he thought he had has eluded him. That overconfidence is now proved to be unfounded. Apart from the strength that he has in Christ, 
Peter is a weakened man. The claim that he is not with Jesus separates him from the very source of strength that might have enabled him to stand confidently in the truth. By saying, I am not with him, he has declared the very condition that is making him weak in that moment and preventing him from standing in the truth. These words of denial are not even fully out of his mouth before the rooster crows, marking the beginning of a new day. And suddenly, in an instant of clarity, he's aware that he has done the unthinkable. He has denied his Savior. Remember back to Luke 22, verses 33 through 34, where Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And here we see the fatal flaw. Peter denies being with the Savior. He distances himself from the Savior. And because of that, he is weakened. Scripture says again and again the power that a believer has to stand in the truth, but always that power is tethered to the source of truth. Philippians 4.13, don't just say, I can do all things. Say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I am not working through Christ, if I am not depending on Him, if I am not reliant on my Savior, I am powerless. John 15.5, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you and you can bear much fruit. But he doesn't leave it up to the imagination. He says, but apart from me, what are you going to accomplish? You can do nothing. Peter is learning the hard way that no matter what the consequences, we must always abide in Christ. We cannot afford to separate ourselves from the true strength that is ours to experience. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 through 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It is likely that the face of the Savior was wearing some of the consequences of the stand that he was determined to take that night. Jesus had come before Annas, the former high priest. After he had suffered, he had been shuffled over to Caiaphas, the current high priest, in a room across that courtyard, the courtyard where Peter had been standing trying to warm himself by the fire when he himself was confronted. Now by this time, he had not experienced the lashings that the soldiers would give him later. They had not yet crammed a crown of thorns onto his brow. They had not draped a mocking robe around his shoulders, but they had screamed at him. They had dragged his name through the mud and accused him of terrible crimes against his own people and against the, the, the government of Rome. They have spit in his face. They have punched him repeatedly. So the face that looks upon Peter in that moment is a face that is wearing the battle scars of courage. Jesus looks at Peter. Jesus would have been justified to be angry at this man who insisted he would stand firm but has now denied Jesus three times. But it's not hatred that Peter sees in the eyes of his Savior. Jesus looks to Peter to acknowledge that the words he spoke earlier have been fulfilled. Sometimes words aren't even necessary because a look says enough. And in that look, Peter doesn't see hatred. He sees something that probably hurts even more he sees love. 
He sees the eyes of his dear friend who knows without a doubt that Peter has denied him. And yet he still sees love and affection and care. It's more than Peter can stand. He flees. He runs for the door. And the grief that he felt ran down his cheeks as he made his exit. He wept bitterly. Peter's bitter weeping is clear in each of the Gospels. It's something that is emphasized because it shows the true heart of the man. His response is not a desperation, how can I get myself out of trouble like Judas's was? His response is that of a broken heart, one of grief that is ashamed of his actions and wishes that he could do anything to take it back, to undo what he has done. The remorse Peter feels in the courtyard echoes the confession that he made when he was first called by Jesus. If you can think all the way back to chapter 5 of Luke, when Peter was on a fishing vessel and Jesus had called to him from the shore, how's the fishing? And Peter had said, we're catching nothing. And Peter had said, well then pick up your nets and cast them in the other side and see what you get. And the nets had come full, so full of fish that it was beginning to sink the boat. And they, they, they came into the shore to speak to this man and, and Jesus called Peter to be one of his disciples and urged him to leave the fishing of fish to come be a fisher of men. In Luke chapter 5 verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you remember that heart that Peter had? Even at the very beginning of his relationship with Jesus, even at the very beginning of their connection, and that has returned to him in the courtyards of the high priest. He sees that he is a sinful man. He knows by the gaze of his loving Savior that he has done injustice to the one that he should have represented. How foolish Peter's own words spoken earlier that night must have felt to him at that low point. Mark 14, verses 27 through 31. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. What is he saying there? He's throwing the other disciples under the bus. He's saying, These guys don't love you like I do, but I will not give up, Jesus. I will stand firm. Verse 30, And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter's not the only one then that has denied Jesus. Peter's not the only one that has failed to stand. And as his church, we must be honest with ourselves that there are times when we have, de we have denied the opportunity to stand for Christ, where we have been silent when we should have been bold. And so in response to the, the failure of Peter, who is one of us, who is a part of our church, who is a part of our brotherhood and our family, how can we learn to take heed as we saw in 1 Corinthians earlier this morning? How can we put our minds on the things that are good so that we might guard ourselves from this kind of shameful denial? First of all, friends, we need to keep aware of how perfect God is. We must keep in mind the fact that we serve a God who is mightier than any threat that could come upon us. We serve a God who is greater than any circumstance that could present itself to us or that can weigh us down. 
He is greater than any other authority that can try to control or condemn us. He is the Lord on the throne. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. We must remember that is the God that we serve. In the face of opposition, we must remember that our King is greater that He is our champion, that He is guarding us. I would rather stand before any earthly council and, and profess Christ and be condemned than stand before a heavenly council and be condemned for denying the Lord God. So let us remember the perfection of our God, that He is holy and good, and that if we follow after Him, that He will stand for us. We must remember, friends, how imperfect we are. We must take proper stock of our broken and bleeding hearts and realize that we are weak apart from Christ. That not one of us, no matter how wise, no matter how stubborn, not one of us has what it takes to defeat the enemy apart from Jesus Christ and His help. Romans 5.12 says it plainly, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, that's talking about us. We are imperfect people. We have failure designed into us because of our sinfulness. Not only do we inherit imperfection from Adam, the first man who sinned and set the pattern for the rest of us, but we also walk in that sin. We commit wrongdoings. We break God's law. We dishonor His name. And so if we do not keep in our minds our own perfection, then we are liable to follow the same path that brother Peter did in that moment of weakness. To think we are stronger than we really are. To think that we can handle ourselves on our own strength, with our own faith, when in reality we have no faith apart from what God has given to us. So we remember how perfect our God is and how imperfect we are. And then we must remember, friends, how dangerous the world is that we live in. How truly threatening it is to our purity and to our holiness. 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now don't get this sideways. Jesus told us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There is a sense in which we are to care for the well-being of the world and in caring for them, bring them to Christ. But what John is trying to describe to us here is this mentality that we cannot have, that the world itself, that the creation of God is our goal and our desire. That is falsehood. The world is a trap. The world that we live in presents all sorts of false happinesses and false joys and false affirmations that if we seek them out, we might find them, but we will always be disappointed by them. They will always fall short of what Christ can give us, which is true joy and satisfaction and contentment. So we must keep an eye on the dangerous enemy that is in front of us, that this world is constantly trying to lure us away from what God has designed for us, that our own hearts even trying to lure us away from the truth if we are not staying in the Word, if we are not seeking Him in prayer and finding what He has, he has kept for us through the ages. And finally, we need to remember, friends, how powerful the provision of prayer is. I know that we break these passages into parts and so sometimes we can lose track of what is really one whole. 
Just a few weeks ago, we talked about the powerful provision that prayer is, how the Lord God uses that to prepare our hearts and to ready us for the battle that is about us. If we are not in prayer, friends, then we can expect to stumble and fall in these kinds of ways again and again and again. Because it is through the provision of prayer that we maintain this face-to-face interaction with our God, where we maintain a mindset that does not wander from Him. It is in those times of prayer when we can confess our sins to our God and be honest about who we are and be honest to Him about the great need that we have for His sustenance, for His provision, and for His protection. Prayer. Prayer could have preserved Peter. And yet he had fallen asleep. He had not taken that time to ready his heart. And so in that moment when he is put to the test, he is not ready to say, yes, I belong to Jesus Christ. But we cannot think that this is the end of Peter or that this failure means that he could never be loved by the Savior because the the real ending to the story is much more beautiful than this. Peter may have lost his strength for a moment, but he did not truly lose his faith. The tears that he wept as he fled the courtyard prove this to us. That though he has stumbled and fallen, he has a heart for the Lord God still. Luke 23, 31-32 did not just tell us that Peter would fail. It told us that Peter would stand again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Friends, there's a reason we prayed today with your elders. There's a reason we bowed our head and sought the Lord because we are in deep need as a church. We are in danger of this world pulling us apart. We are in danger of the consequences of sin if we invite sin into our lives. And so how do we protect ourselves against that? It's not with a better security system. It's, it's not with, with uh, bigger fences. It's not with video cameras. We protect our hearts with prayer. We protect ourselves by going to the Lord and seeking His strength and lifting up those who are hurt among us so that He might do what we cannot do and making them right and binding them back together. So friends, let us not be discouraged. Though Peter has failed and though we will fail in like kind from time to time, the Lord God is greater than our failure and His victory can cause those even who have stumbled to stand again in God's truth. Let's bow and and close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your love and we thank You for being with us this morning and ministering even now to our hurting hearts. We pray that You would be with Doris and her hurting body right now, Lord God, that you would lift her up. Pray, Lord God, that we would be an encouragement to her as she begins to see the love of this church expressed for her, Father. I pray that it would remind her of your sweet and wonderful love. Lord God, help us to be a people who is not afraid, a people who will not cower against the opinions of this world, will not let the world dictate what we believe and how we stand, but instead will walk in the light of truth. God, let the scripture be our firm foundation, Father. I pray, Lord God, that we would not be ashamed of your book, that we would not be ashamed of the one who has saved us, that we will proclaim him in all things, that we will share him with all that we love and that we care about, that we will tell them about Christ, that they will, we will point them to, to you, Jesus, so that they might know you and have a, a, a right, right relationship with you. 
Father, God, continue to be our, our light. And may you be glorified in all that we do. Help to teach us humility, Lord God. Draw us near so that we will not be overconfident in ourselves, but then instead we will boast in the cross and the victory that you won there. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.